Welcome, everyone, to today's podcast, What's Your Delta? MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development, with your host, Janice Palaganis, who is the Associate Professor of Health Professions Education and the Associate Director of the PhD Program in Health Professions Education, along with Peter Kahn, the Associate Provost for Academic Affairs at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. Hello, everyone. Welcome to What's Your Delta? MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development. You're here with Janice Palaganis and Peter Kahn. And Janice, I know the last time I listened to the podcast, the intro mentioned you as associate professor, but I believe we should update that Uh. verbiage. Because you are now Professor Janice Pelagonis. Give you kudos for listening to our podcast because I have trouble. You know, it's just like watching yourself on video. It's it's kind of, it feels funny listening to myself. <laughs> it's true. Although I have an out-of-body experience listening because I feel like, ah, I don't remember saying any of that. <laughs> Because when you're in it, you're you're focused on trying to capture what the person's saying, thinking of the next question, checking with the, the run sheet that they offer us. So it's nice when it finally comes out to just listen to it as a whole cohesive unit and to take away the main message instead of focusing on every word. So true. I have to say, when I listen to it, I think, you know, I definitely say more ums than what's in here. Thank you, George, for editing and producing and making me sound so much better. <laughs> We have someone with us today. I'm sure I'm going to be taking notes as usual and look forward to hearing the polished version once it's edited. Kim Jung is the Chief Equity Officer at MGH Institute of Health Professions, and she's been in that role for two years? A little over two years. (laughs) (laughs) It's so hard to keep track. Because we've grown, the the office started, she was the inaugural, is the inaugural person in that role and really created the office and responded to an identified need in the Institute's strategic plan that I know one, some of the conversations I had been in in previous iterations was, well, diversity, equity, inclusion is in everything we do. We don't need to call it out. And then after sort of a couple of years of that strategic plan, a number of us said, no, I think we it needs its own attention because it is an area of intellectual inquiry. It's an area of its own profession. There's professional organizations and we need someone with that expertise. And so Kim joined us and now she's here to share her, her research, her projects and the future with our listeners. Welcome, Kim. Thanks for having me. So what, why don't we start with your title? Because you were not chief equity officer when you joined. What was your title when you joined? What was the thinking about switching to equity officer? Sure. My title when I joined was executive director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think we made the switch because I had been doing chief equity officer work, but I didn't have that title. I, I had an executive director title. But then the other thing was that it was DEI. And after last summer's racial reckonings, we were talking about a move from DEI to Jedi. A few years ago, I read this article by D.L. Stewart called The Language of a Peace and inside higher education. And in it, DL talks about how institutions use diversity and inclusion language, but what they should actually be doing um, is to lead with justice and equity. And so our office made that switch from the DEI office to the JEDI office because we wanted to make clear that we were leading with justice and equity. So then my title wasn't chief diversity officer, but it became chief equity officer because we are looking at equity issues within higher education. Well, I privilege equity. I guess I'm thinking of the different letters in the acronym. Mm -hmm. Did you think about like 
chief justice and equity officer, or is it just a shorthand for all the initiatives going on? I think it was more shorthand because I was thinking maybe chief Jedi officer, but then that title is pretty long. And I think Paula wanted to keep it simple. So she suggested chief diversity officer. And I said, hey, uh, we're also like, we're trying to lead with justice and equity. Would it be okay for me to have chief equity officer? And she said that that was fine. So we ended up creating that position. And then for everyone to share in this common language, how do you distinguish justice and equity work from, I think a lot of us are familiar with the diversity and inclusion piece that we're in Hispanic Heritage Month now, and you have the sort of celebration of different cultures, but what different about justice and equity? Justice and equity, we focus on structural issues that are challenges and limit opportunities that people have, right? So when you think about conversations that we've had at the IHP, there's been confusion about what equality and equity mean, right? So one of the examples that I provide for our students is that when we think about how the vaccine was rolled out, there's equality in who had an opportunity. For instance, everyone who was 75 and up and everyone who was 65 and up. But when you're looking at it through an equity lens, you're, you notice that inequities exist, right? So even though people have an equal chance based on age, when you're looking at it based on race and you know that the average life expectancy in Roxbury is 59, that's not equitable because a a lot of the members of the Black community don't have access to the vaccine. So when we're thinking about education, we're looking at opportunities for individuals to be able to have equal outcomes and not just equal opportunities. So that includes some of the uh, guidelines that we had created because we know within our own faculty, we've had um, faculty of color talk about the invisible labor that they engage in. And there's literature of over 30 years where we know faculty of color engage in a lot of emotional labor and invisible labor and mentoring students that they don't necessarily get credit for. And at the IHP, we've had these conversations the past several years and even before I got here. And now we've implemented guidelines to think and take into account the invisible labor that faculty engage in so that we could then be able to reduce their course load, their teaching load, so that they could spend more time focusing on research and the work that they need to get done. Yeah, I have been part of those conversations. Thanks so much, Kim. I, I feel like I learned so much from you. I mean, being Asian American, I definitely feel like I have the life experiences and expertise and like the, the lived expertise, but definitely do not know. Uh, I think you were the one that educated me on the new terminology <laughs> um, that kind of uh, emerged during the pandemic. Maybe it's been around for a decade before, but, you know, kind of passe terms and what's kind of the upcoming terms, as well as things like invisible labor. I never thought of it until we had our discussions and it's been enlightening. Thanks, Janice. And I feel like I'm always learning too. So the language is always evolving and there's things that I'm learning every single day, right? So we've been using that the term Latinx a lot, but yeah. there, there's also been a move to Latine, L-A-T-I-N-E, because we're thinking about gender inclusion, but we also need to think about language inclusion, right? So Spanish speakers don't, like when you think about Latinx, that's not a term that could be very well understood within the language, but if you're looking at Latin A, it's easier to pronounce for Spanish speakers, and it's also inclusive, gender inclusive. So there's uh -huh. been a move towards that. We shared it in our Jedi newsletter last month as well, but I'm always constantly learning about the language because I, I still, I think I still use some outdated language because there's always new language that's coming up. What's your source of information, Kim, recognizing there, even within any, in any single community, there's a, a diversity and range of opinion. I think that's what a lot of faculty feel a bit over
overwhelmed because they're trying to keep up with their own area of expertise and they don't want to offend or exclude anyone. But is there a source they can go to or is something that nothing's going to be definitive? But where do you look when you want to know the latest trends in your area? I know that I don't have Instagram accounts, but a lot of the times the stuff might be on Instagram. It would be on Medium pages and on social media. I learn about it through reading a lot of different pieces, opinion pieces on Medium. And the place where faculty could probably learn about some of these things would be the Jedi newsletter. We often share resources on there that we've already had a chance to review so that folks know that it's a trusted resource rather than just being able to look on different websites and not knowing what information to trust. I think, you know, talking about resources, I think one thing that a lot of educators have been talking about, there's definitely increased attention and feel uh, the need to address cultural considerations, equity, inclusivity in their classrooms. And a lot of people are, at least, you know, what I'm seeing in social media, trying to figure out where the resources are for what activities to run in their classrooms, how to approach things. And I have two questions. The first is, do you have a resource for those educators that are looking for activities? And the second question I'll ask after that one. (laughs) I guess I would look at the K-12 literature, actually. When I think about resources for teaching K-12 folks in education or folks in curriculum are the place to go, right? So when you think about critical pedagogy and Jedi work, it's very much interconnected. So I would recommend the work of David Stovall. I think his work is really amazing. Gloria Ladson-Billings. These are critical race theorists as well, too, but their work is aligned with Jedi. So I highly recommend looking at the K-12 curriculum literature. So my second question is, I feel like semesters are semester long, and sometimes courses are even shorter than a semester long. Do you really feel like it's possible to teach some of the foundational concepts that create awareness and appreciation and empathy in one class? or one activity? Not necessarily in one class or one activity. I think it starts with like the foundation, right? So at the IHP, we have power, privilege, and positionality, but then also infusing this within the curriculum in terms of developing a classroom climate. Oh, one other person I would recommend would be Bell Hooks, right? Teaching to transgress and her work on critical pedagogy. I think it's so important for us to get to know our students individually. I have a semester long course and sometimes I have like 15 students in my class and other times I'll have like 55. And each of the courses is very different, but we often try to create a community where everybody gets to know each other and to be able to provide support and learn for each other. So there are things that you can do within the course, like the small activities, but I think there are a lot of activities that you have to implement within the classroom just to get to know who your students are as learners, as well as teachers. And the way that I approach teaching my own class is that all of us have a role in teaching and learning. And so I often learn from my own students. And Peter, you had asked, earlier, where do I find some of this information from? And it's like learning from my students is another source of information. Nice. So I suppose I do have a third question. (laughs) Um, So Kim, I think one thing that's fascinated me is, especially in this time of increased attention, is the intersectionality of intersectional theory, pun totally intended, and critical race theory. Have you had thoughts on that? And both are already so complex, and then where they overlap just seems more exponential than just an overlap. What are your thoughts? K-12 
Can you ask the question again, Jen, so I understand? Sure. So the intersection of intersectional theory as well as critical race theory, because I know you've taught critical race theory for the past 11 years. And, you know, when you're taking into account what one individual, as you're saying, getting to know an individual, they have their stories that are not just based on race, but many, many other things, socioeconomic status, gender identity, all sorts of things. So when you're kind of mixing that intersectional identity with critical race, how do you deal with that? Because it's it's a lot. With critical race theory, one of the central tenets is intersectionality, right? So within critical race theory, you center the discussion on race and racism, but one of the other tenets is recognizing intersectionality in the experiences of racialized individuals. So looking at the intersectionality of racism with other forms of oppression, such as sexism, heterosexism, ageism, classism, etc. So intersectionality is actually part of critical race theory and is aligned with CRT. So it actually works really well. I know that that there's a huge debate within the public about what critical race theory is and that students are being taught that in K-12. Students are not, like there's no K-12 districts or schools that I know of where students are being taught critical race theory. I have a hard enough time teaching my graduate students about the tenets of CRT and application of it. So, Well, how much, you've hit on what's popular in the news media and we, I don't think we have to dignify that debate, but how much, if I'm a health professions faculty member, how much of critical race theory intersectionality do I need to know? Is it enough to just be familiar with the terms? Do I have to do, do I have to read David Bell or some of these other folks uh, in order to infuse that in my teaching? So I think as a, a health professions educator, you don't necessarily have to read about critical race theory. You can read about health, health disparities and think about how racism may play a role in how health disparities are created and help your students to better serve patients who are diverse to better understand their holistic experiences. So if a patient of color comes in with different health issues, to, to think about social determinants of health, right? So you can use social determinants of health as another framework to understand patients' lived experiences and to better support and serve those patients. I don't know if I answered your question very well, Peter. Can you repeat it again? Well, I won't uh, repeat, but maybe I'll rephrase because it, this is sort of a central tension in a lot of pre-licensure education is that we're taking them from perhaps no health background to being a licensed clinician. And so that's a lot of individualized skills one-on-one -on -one with a patient, a client, or maybe a family. But when you talk about structure, which I think all of us who have seen disparities over time recognize as the underlying cause, but what can a, you know, a newly licensed physical therapist do to take on structures? It seems like a heavy lift for someone who's still trying to figure out how to treat and diagnose. Now they've got to go after racism as well. So I guess it, it what is the obligation for, for someone teaching new health professionals to tackle the system as well as the individual? Yeah, I'm thinking about that too. And for a new professional to understand the patient themselves. So I think the ultimate goal is to engage in patient-centered care, right? So to look at the individual, but then also understand their lived experiences. And a lot of the times I see within the curriculum, students are taught from a white hegemonic worldview, and they don't necessarily get exposed to 
understanding the racialized experience of patients to understanding the structural issues that patients might experience, right? So a recent PT grad ends up working with patients who then don't necessarily have time or they might show up late to their appointments because they have to take multiple buses or they have to engage in caretaking for them, the PT patient, to understand what their lived experiences are and to modify what recommendations that they would make for the patients to be able to carry out some of the exercises that they need to to engage in PT. So I think just to have that foundational information about systemic oppression that patients might experience, but then also how do you as a health professional engage in supporting your patients and then treating them in a way that's respectful, in a way that honors their identity, in a way that really, like when we think about the the mission of the IHP, like how do we advance care in a diverse society in order for our students and alumni to be able to do that, they need to understand the challenges that our patients experience so that they can support them. I don't know if that answers your question, but... Well, and you also, would you say that everything you just said about understanding the totality of the patient, the client's lived experience, but also apply to learners, that faculty need to be considerate when their students are late or need an extension because their own lives are enveloped in a, in a system that may not be compatible with our traditional higher education model. I agree with that. I definitely agree with um, how faculty should be flexible when it comes to students, especially now too during the pandemic, but even pre-pandemic. I know that faculty might have deadlines for grading papers and other things, but when I think for me, when I teach my own students, they'll ask for extensions and then I'll give extensions and I'll give them as a group as well, because sometimes I know that if you give them individually, some faculty might see that as, oh, you're giving like additional support for some students and not for others. And I I see that when you think about that through an equity lens, that is helpful to be able to provide that additional support for individual students. But then also, I think if faculty might struggle with that to, to do that as a whole, one of the challenges that I've heard from some of our students with religious observances is faculty might not understand outside of the Christian holidays that they observe Jewish or Muslim holidays and students are then expected to make up the work right after the holiday or students have to take final exams and study for final exams while they're fasting. And just to have more flexibility, more understanding from our faculty, also knowing that we do have deadlines that we have to meet, but just to to add that flexibility and to be be more compassionate about it to our students. In particular, I'm loving your thought process here. And thanks so much for sharing your thoughts around, you know, how do faculty develop themselves and to what extent? Because it's it's like, at least, you know, faculty listening, you already have it within. Um, It's not something that you should go and read a ton about if you have the ability to care about psychological safety and make all students feel safe and included and get to know each one and be flexible around that. It seems like that's really the key thing in terms of creating inclusive environments and educational spaces. And I just, I guess ending with the beginning, which is not a a logical way to do it, but your conversation leads me to think about your own doctoral research and subsequent publications on supporting students of color. So how has that research influenced the type of projects that you've undertaken in your current role? 
Well, my doctoral research was on how doctoral students of color experience racism and racial trauma and how they navigate and negotiate those experiences when they're highly politicized and students might encounter retaliation. That research has really helped me to understand my own role as an administrator in supporting students. I've mainly worked with graduate students in my JEDI career, and I think for graduate students, the process is a lot more isolating than it is for undergraduate students. And I know for doctoral students as a whole group, they have have not very positive experiences, but for doctoral students of color, they have racism that they also have to navigate. A lot of the work that I have been doing has been to to listen, right? So coming into the institution at the IHP when I first came here, I listened to the challenges that students face. Some of them were related to racism. Some of them were related to LGBTQ issues and not getting support. And students with disabilities also had challenges. And now religious issues are also coming up. So a lot of it, like I'm a qualitative researcher. So just understanding and hearing that data and then processing it and figuring out ways in which we could better support our students, whether it's through engagement opportunities, faculty development, I think a lot of the times students ask for faculty development, right? So if they're experiencing racism, heterosexism, experiencing gender microaggressions, etc., to be able to provide our faculty with support to learn about these issues, to learn about microaggressions, and to engage in conversations within the classroom. They, the students also want to be able to have spaces, so we've created more targeted support for marginalized and minoritized students as well. And then also thinking about it more holistically, like what happens happens after doctoral students graduate, they become faculty, right? So then also creating opportunities for our faculty of color to connect with each other and provide support with each other. And from these conversations, then they'll share information about issues that come up, in which case we can then work on policies to support our faculty. And like the same thing with uh, staff and students too, we're developing employee resource groups. So employee resource groups are for faculty and staff. So there's a lot of work going on that's both focused on on targeted support, as well as capacity building, educating our community as a whole. Thank you so much, Kim. I have learned, as always, a lot today. Every time I talk with Kim, I learn something. So the three tips that I'm taking away and Peter just checking in with you, the first is to lead with justice and equity and stay up to date with the language. The second is to get to know the individual and their intersectionalities. And the third is to offer engagement and support opportunities. Peter, anything you want to add to those three or fill in? Well, I think Kim gave us so much that by necessity, we had to jam a lot into each one because I think you get to separate out leading with justice and equity is its own concept and all the idea about language that it's moving so fast that we need social media, not our peer-reviewed journals to be able to know what's the appropriate language for the moment that we're in. So are we allowed four tips? I like that. We're going to make it four today. It's an important topic. Well, thank you so much, Kim. I've enjoyed our time with you. Peter, always great to see you. Thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed this conversation as well. Thank you for listening to our podcast, What's Your Delta? MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development. We hope you come back and listen to our future podcasts with your host, Janice Palaganis and Peter Kahn of the MGH Institute of Health Professions. 